Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. It's been five years since Conversations with Creative Women first joined the podcast universe. And in that time, we have met and gotten to know the most fascinating, creative, accomplished, passionate women. And that includes Jennifer Baumgartner, a guest in year one, feminist activist, journalist, author. She's written six books on contemporary feminism, documentary filmmaker, public speaker, editor of the Women's Review of Books, and publisher of the Feminist Press from 2013 to 2017. Jennifer has a new title. She's the founder of Dautier Press, an independent publishing house. The name Dautier is Icelandic for daughter and speaks to its mission of passing down and building upon feminist intellectual and creative legacies and fills the void in our history and present culture through storytelling in all forms and for all ages. Oh, and by the way, Jennifer's maternal family is from Iceland. Among the first titles, not my idea, a book about whiteness, an illustrated children's book about racism by Anastasia Higginbotham, also a guest on Conversations with Creative Women. Brontes Purnell's The Nightlife of Jacuzzi Gasket, about an older sibling taking care of a younger one. Also this year, Jennifer became the editor of the Women's Review of Books, making her the third editor in its 35-year history. So, Jennifer, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, and congratulations on five years of this incredible show. Well, the best thing is it's one great woman after another, and there's 300 million more out there for me to interview. So I'm going to start with this very generic question. What's new? It's kind of what's old because I've always worked within feminism and books since Mm -hmm. I've been working for, you know, beyond my Olive Garden days. Um, So (laughs) there is life after Olive Garden. Garden, Um, But the newest thing is that I started this press that you that you just mentioned. And I've been on many sides of publishing now. But the thing I had never tried, which is actually owning my own entity and mm-hmm. what that undertakes. And so and it's and it's really complex, I have to say. When my parents ask me what I do each day, I just don't even really know how to put it into words because the back end of publishing is all things that people, readers, don't really think about. And so so much of it is about metadata and, you know, dealing with the distributor and print dates and production schedules. So some of the non-sexy stuff in well, a way. Yes, you'd think so. Well, as a writer, I was like, oh, thank God my publisher, FSG, is dealing with all that. Right. But now that I'm doing it, I actually think it's really fascinating. And I think as a feminist, it's really important for people to understand when they're signing their contracts what the business is doing for them and what part of the business maybe they could do themselves mm-hmm. or just to understand it better um, in order to be a more effective writer in this current marketplace. Well, it really begs the question, and I don't want to bury the lead. Why did you start this press? Okay. So I worked for four years at the Feminist Press, which was founded in 1970, the year of my birth. It was an incredible experience. The Feminist Press brings this amazing history that I was able to just sort of like hop on and... And And capitalize on, And capitalize and elevate and, Mm -hmm. you know, and I learned so much. But the other thing that it brings is a whole history. And that history isn't something I formed or created and didn't necessarily play to my strengths or my ultimate interests. So even though I had so much freedom there, and I'm so grateful for it, to publish the books I wanted to publish. There were certain projects that just weren't right for the feminist mm-hmm, press. Like I just mm-hmm. wouldn't even impose on the feminist press. Yeah. And those are the ones that I'm doing for daughter. And those are the kinds of projects that I think I, I was like the most drawn to, but they just weren't quite right for that place and wouldn't have wouldn't have worked well and wouldn't have wouldn't have met the mission. And I really did have a fiduciary duty <laughs> to understand the mission and to keep 
keep it going. Um, so my press is not a nonprofit. Um, and so it doesn't have that security, but it also doesn't have that obligation of what, what it means to be a not educational nonprofit. Was this brewing in your brain that you needed to break away or that you needed to do something that hadn't been done before? Why couldn't you have continued to stay at the feminist press? Well, there's so many answers to that question because many threads converge. Obviously. And yeah. one of them was I turned 48 last week. When I started at Feminist Press, I was by far their youngest director they had ever had. But a lot happened in those four years in terms of feminism, and I was much older than the feminism that I saw around me. That this really exciting movement that's happening right now is, is as feminism often is, is really youth-driven. So millennial. Yeah, absolutely. And while I was Heavy. really at ease working with millennials and capturing that, and I was really at ease providing the platform for that. At Feminist Press, you're also the spokesperson for the press. And I really did feel like a younger person would, would more appropriately be. Ah. So compared to like what they had before, yes, I appeared young. But I knew that the really active movement was 10, 15 years younger than me or more, was led by women of color. And so I actually started to feel like I wasn't the right person to gotcha. be the face of it. Uh -huh. And so the woman that is there now is somebody I've known for a long time and really love and respect and was really pleased that she became the director. Her name is Jamia Wilson. And she's at least 10 years younger than me. She's the first woman of color to helm this organization. And also to help, you know, there's, there's actually, you know, things are kind of turning over right now a little bit. But a lot of the second wave institutions that we think of as as the kind of more brand name or mainstream, they have remained in uh, very white, you know, in terms of uh, maybe not what their what the content of you know what they create or whatever. Because the books, I didn't feel that way about the books, but in terms of the leadership, and it's it's meaningful when the leadership shifts in that way. And so I really wanted to get out of the way mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of that kind of shift. And um, and I think it's been really good for the press, honestly. I mean, I don't track it so carefully, but I can tell that they're doing really well. So I think it was the right move for me personally. I think it was the right move in terms of the movement and insofar as Feminist Press is, is a totem for that. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think it was, I, I think that this woman who stepped into that leadership position was really uh, the right person to be helming it. What was going on in your head and in your heart about starting your own publishing company? I mean, you've done a lot of stuff, but this is different, isn't it? Even though it's under the same umbrella. It's not like you just started a franchise of, uh, you know, fast food restaurants. Right, where it's turnkey. Yeah. No, I think you're. that's such a perceptive <laughs> observation. I Yes, it is different. And it, there's more jeopardy, for sure. There's more financial jeopardy than I've ever taken on before. So I have started other things. Mm -hmm. I started with Amy Richards, a speakers bureau that's, that's enormous. It's the biggest feminist speakers bureau in the world. And started this thing, Feminist Camp. But they were all, in terms of what sort of capital had to go into them to start, it was very manageable. And as long as the two of us could handle the had work each other, and right? had each other, it was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Publishing is different because just simply getting the books published, like paying the printer, can be, you know, for the first, um, my first couple books is forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. So you have to be willing to put that much money in jeopardy before you've made a dime. Gotcha. So that's that's the difference in terms of risk for me. But I mm -hmm. felt like I was ready for it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like because of Feminist Press where I had to be so worried about money because it really ran on a super tight budget and I wanted to make sure that it could be healthy, I became really aware of the finances of, of publishing. And so I, I went into it understanding what I was going to have to do for this first year. But I also think I've always been drawn. And I don't know if this is negative or positive or, not, you know, silly to think of it that way. I've always worked best working for myself. 
I've always been the most comfortable doing it. I, in fact, one of the biggest things when I've worked for others has been that I don't have a natural sense of hierarchy, huh. <laughs> meaning I, I believe in hierarchy in the sense that I know it has value and it is orderly and has structure, but I'll, I'll often have an idea and I'll think, oh, I should just run with this. And I won't, like, let's say I'm lower on the chain there, I won't get the right approvals. And I've gotten in trouble so many times for this. So working for myself eliminates that issue. So are you not a delegator? I can delegate. It's more like when I have a good idea and I know it's going to work, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. And so I often don't get the approvals. But, I mean, it, it started from when I was an intern at Ms. One day I just came. This is, you know, 1992. One day I came in. The, the Everybody was always complaining about the lobby and how messy it was, the <laughs> lobby of our office. Uh-huh. And I just came in over the weekend and painted it. <laughs> but we were in the Helmsley building. You know, they had – you weren't allowed to just, like, paint your office. Duh. And and I didn't even ask the the my boss, Marsha Gillespie. I just did it. And they came in and it, like, kind of looked great. So everybody sort of let it go. But that's the kind of – thing that I do. I don't really think it through. Mm -hmm. And often Mm -hmm. it works out, but occasionally it doesn't. And I like taking on responsibility. I'm comfortable with it. And I like taking initiative. And I don't like having to wait around for approval for things. But were you at all intimidated by giving birth? I'm always intimidated before I start something. I'm very scared about this, but I'm also really excited. Um, The first few books, like the first book, for instance, is called Not My Idea, a book about whiteness. And it's the first children's book to address white supremacy. And I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's like it's a picture books for little kids. Right, right, right. And I think it'll be a real illuminating thing for white parents as well, as it has been for me working on it. But it could also be a bomb. I mean, I don't know. It could be very controversial. There could be a tremendous amount of defensiveness. It could be, you know, I have no idea. And I, and I know that there's risk involved. But I felt so drawn. The minute I saw it, I felt so drawn to how important it was. I could see the hole that it was going to fill in our culture mm-hmm. and how it harmonized with things that are going on for adults, the conversations we're having in feminist communities, the conversations that um, really important African-American thinkers have been putting out for decades. It resonates with that. But there's this way in which the way we treat children is sort of like, oh, well, they're not, even though they're exposed to everything, th- this is too much for them. They right. can't well, hear we're this. we're very dismissive. Yeah. And we're actually very patronizing. Exactly. My whole mission with daughter is we don't talk down. Because mm-hmm. I do remember what it's like to be a kid, and I could handle a lot, and there was a lot I was exposed to. And if adults in my life had acted as sort of witnesses, like, I'm going to hold your hand, I'm going to be here with you, I'm not going to talk you out of your feelings, mm-hmm. and we're going to walk through this together. I'll support you. I'll support you. I think that would have been a little bit different mm-hmm. you know, than the way I was raised and the way I know anyone else was raised. And I think that adults aren't given support for that either because everything's perceived as, like, is this child-friendly? Yeah. So I believe that things can be family-friendly and still rigorous, morally, intellectually, and in terms of the art. And so the children's books that I'm doing, too, the artwork is really I mean, I think really, really on a high level. So it's not like dinosaurs. You know? Right, right, right. So the company products are going to be very eclectic. Yes. I, I feel like they all fit into how I practice feminism, uh-huh. which is I think that I think that there's still so many experiences that we have as human beings that we're not allowed to talk about. And I want to create space in the culture for us to be able to tell the truth about who we are. And what has happened to us? Give some examples of, of that. Well, sort of in my earlier work, I did a lot. This is like, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of work around abortion because even though I grew up in abortion rights was like really, you know, something, you know, taken for granted, as they say. Yeah. People didn't 
activists even didn't identify themselves as people personally impacted by it. So you could be a really big, radical abortion rights activist. You could head Planned Parenthood, but you wouldn't say you had had an abortion. Yes, that's Or you could be a Democratic senator and be like, this is the most important issue on the docket. But you wouldn't say, and my wife had an abortion, or I had an abortion, or my daughter had an abortion. You wouldn't put yourself in it because it was too risky because really how we felt about it is that it's totally shameful, (laughs) (laughs) but we need to have it or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so I tried to... Put faith, you know, I created a project called I Had an Abortion where people with their full names and they'd wear T-shirts that said I had an abortion and they would just tell their story, mm-hmm. who they were before the abortion, who they were after, and then the abortion story. And it was very cathartic for everybody who was involved. And it was also very challenging for people to see people in these T-shirts because they were sort of like, well, why would you brag about that? Yeah, it's right. not bragging. It's just saying that you had it. Right. Um, in fact, it quietly. And so those that's an example of, I guess, the sort of the sort of common experience that I think gets silenced all the time in our culture. And when I see something like that, I'm really drawn to it, and I want to create some sort of way to open up around it. So how long was this brewing in your brain? Well, Daughter, maybe in some really inchoate way, was brewing (laughs) for a long time. But when I was working at Feminist Press, I was really busy and really engaged with what I was doing there. But when I resigned, this is, a, to me, a very typical feminist organization thing. We negotiated, the board and I, <laughs> this really kind of long goodbye. And so it wasn't like, oh, I resigned and a month later I left. It's like I resigned and then two months later we even started this, or they, it was up to them, started the search for the new person. And so I was probably there for five or six even months after I had resigned mm-hmm. working. Mm-hmm. And so during that time, I had all this time to sort of think, like, well, what's next? And I've never in my life, so from the time I was a, started you know, babysitting, I've never not had, like, a job that went immediately into the next job for financial reasons. And there's always been this sort of panic, like, you have to have the next thing. Don't think about what the next thing is. Something will come along and you grab it, you know. Well, there was always that line, you don't leave a job until you have another job. I mean, that's just, you know, that was just a mantra. And if you work in a more homemade or freelance way the way I often have, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just, I would never say no to a gig. So Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. somebody asked me to write something, of course, even if I don't have time. Somebody asked (laughs) me to do a lecture in Iowa, of course, even if it meant, you know, being away from the family for five days, you know. So I'm used to just sort of doing that. And I thought, okay, well, can I operate differently? What would it be like if I really, I, I, I finished up June 1st. What would it be like if I didn't start something until fall, September mm. 1st? Mm-hmm. And so over the course of the summer, and I had this whole list of things that I was sort of interested in doing. And they, so Daughter Press was not necessarily number one on your no, list? No, no, not at all. Not oh, at all. That, and I oh, certainly didn't wow. have that name or anything. But oh. I thought about the things I was interested in, and I'm really interested in Icelandic culture and that part of my background and being more being more attached to it. I'm really, and I know you've been to Iceland, and so I'm really interested in the Icelandic language because there's only 300,000 native speakers. And because everybody now interacts with devices, all Icelanders speak English. And little kids speak English a lot because they have this sort of YouTube, you know, literacy. Well, they have nobody else to talk to. <laughs> well, they have YouTube literacy in their own, yeah. you know, uh-huh. in their lives because of the way they're interacting with devices and devices are not Icelandic, you know, are in Icelandic. Right. And so there's the language is, is um, at risk of dying. Right. And so I'm very engaged in thinking about that. Like, what would that mean? Because I think Iceland, although it's the, one of the smallest countries in the world, it has a disproportionate impact in terms of literature and all over. Absolutely. So I want to. Yeah. I want to. Th- I feel grateful to have that sort of window. And I'm from North Dakota too, so I like small places that have a big personality. <laughs> um, 
So so I was sort of thinking about that. I was thinking about there was this I, you probably knew her Barbara Seaman that one of my mentors was a was a second wave feminist who died many years ago of cancer. Mm-hmm. But she was so instrumental in my life for from the time I moved here until she died and she for so many young women and now I'm you know middle aged but she was such a mentor to so many people. I thought, well, it's a 10 year anniversary of her death. Maybe I'll do some sort of conference about what her impact was to feminism. So it was like really wide range of things. Maybe I'll produce I did some producing of plays over the last few years. I've made documentary. I had some ideas around that. And at the end of the summer, the thing I kept coming back to is I really did feel like there were books that I hadn't published and that I needed to, even though I was scared to start this thing. And maybe, and at first I was like, well, maybe I'll just get these books that I know are out there that I want to do. Maybe I'll act as sort of an agent or I'll see if I could be, have an imprint somewhere Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. there's a lot of protection and I have to, you know, I'm under the umbrella of something. I have to answer to someone, but at the same time I get to be creative and bring it. And I just thought that's just not the way I work best. So I ultimately decided to start my own thing. I'm sure we talked about this our first go round, but I want to bring this up again. Where does that come from? All the stuff that you've come up with, you thought of, you've done. Maybe there have been some failures, whatever, but you never stop. Yeah, I I don't. And I think probably at this point I can just admit that I I do have uniquely supportive parents. Okay. So I definitely – and I say that I say that because I didn't necessarily – I knew I had good parents who were really nice and mm-hmm. it was an intact family and whatever. And I knew they believed in me. But now that I've seen with my peers the wide range of – things that can happen with parents, yes, I think that yes. they were uniquely supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, in Meaning, I think they gave me a lot of space to be myself. There wasn't a lot of anxiety around like, oh, well, Jennifer's saying she wants to do this thing and it seems so unrealistic. Or what is she nuts? How is she ever mm-hmm. going to make money? Or mm-hmm. why is she living in New York? It's so expensive. As a, for, I was a single mom for many years. I, they just never acted like I couldn't handle it, but they also provided, they didn't leave me hanging. You know, gotcha. they were there. And they're very proud. And so they they kind of they made me always feel extremely important. And so I think it gave me this confidence that, you know, here I am in New York, but I'm I'm important. I deserve to be here. And so I just have always thought I could I could do these things. And I think feminism d- did that for me too. I think feminism is a really interesting working in organized feminism while there's been there's so many things like, you know, among like with other feminists I'm totally willing to bitch about. <laughs> it's just a space where you feel like Again, I'm allowed to be myself, mm-hmm. I'm allowed to bring my whole self here, and I'm around people who want who are, want to talk about the things that I'm passionate about. I don't have to pretend I'm actually passionate about this other thing. We want to talk about this, and we want to draw each other out. And it's a very um, – it's sort of a psychotherapeutic community as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a community that although there's been so much falling down on the job, it's just taken as a given that, of course, we're trying to understand the way that racism is part of the story of feminism. And we want and we know that that's part of the story of oppression as well. And talking about um, sexual abuse. And that's part of the story as well. So there's so many, it isn't just sort of like the pay gap or some sort of really mm-hmm. simplistic way mm-hmm. at looking or, you know, women working and having opportunities. It isn't simplistic. It's really trying to like understand how we can be whole people and kind of face the history of the United States, which is extremely idealistic, but also and paternalistic and dissociated from its mm-hmm. crimes. So is it harder now than it was? Which thing? Starting things? Yes, and coming to terms with the whole concept of feminism. Or millennials don't have issues the well, way we oh do. Oh, my gosh. So it's kind of 
cool and crazy to see for me because I was, you know, like a third wave feminist leader who was traveling around the world for or not. Yeah, sometimes internationally, but certainly around the country for 15 years straight, probably 30 college visits a year, kind of trying to be in a very accessible version of feminism so Mm -hmm. that the people that I that I knew really related to it wouldn't feel like they weren't good enough or feel scared off. And it's really interesting to see this very kind of radical, confident version of feminism, very, very black and white version of feminism right now. But it seems not just superficial and trendy, too. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a real radical movement. And I'm ex- I'm super excited by it. But yeah, I mean, I bring my own understanding of what I think third wave co- contributed. And I feel like it's it's so valuable to what's happening on happening right now, but I don't feel like it's really part of the conversation in the same way. But I think that's okay. I think there's an important thing happening right now, and the the values that I believe third wave contributed to feminism, I know will come back. And those values have have a lot to do with nuance, have a lot to do with not leaving anyone out. I think this idea, I I love that we're calling out all of these abusers. You mean the Me Too movement? Yeah, I mm-hmm. love that. Mm-hmm. I love it. I want men to be able to have a path back to humanity. Um, yeah, even, you don't want even them bad all men. to be, you know, at, at, on Alcatraz. Not at all. Yeah. And I don't mm-hmm. not not just because it's mean. I think it's I think it's not accurate. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make excuses for. And I think that absolutely the men that have lost their job should. Um, and it's been exciting to see consequences. It's kind of shocking to me because so many years of there never being that kind of right, consequences. Right. It was forever. Their, it was their right. Yeah. Oh, their job. And they're so talented. You know, and it's really exciting to see those fictions punctured. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't want, in the same way that it hurt so much to see women scapegoated as it was their fault when they got raped or when they got. Yes, right. It, I don't want to see uh, men have no path back from from the bad things that they've done in their mm-hmm. life. And I don't think that that's appropriate. And I don't think it's helpful. I think it just creates another sort of scapegoat. So what would you like to do with your new publishing company? I mean, it's not exclusively imparting information for children. I mean, no. you know, obviously Nuh-uh. it's much more varied and nuanced than that. Yeah. What would make you different than another publishing house? Oh, that's a good question. I should have an answer at the ready for that. Well, I mean, two things that I've already mentioned. One is that the artwork is rigorous, whether whether mm-hmm. or not it's for children. Mm-hmm. And so um, I really believe in books as an object. And I think that if you believe, meaning not just digital, you know, yeah. it's not just yeah, words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are a lot of thought goes into what that reading experience is physically. Let me interrupt you and just say that. Does that make you nervous about the fact that people don't buy books? People do buy books. The industry is still enormous. Okay. And so ebook is attenuating. Okay. All right. So go ahead. Yeah. But it makes me nervous the way, uh, that I'm not totally necessarily understanding exactly how they do mm-hmm. it. You know, like there's always things mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily understand. But I think people especially buy books if the book is beautiful and um, easy to read, meaning mm-hmm. there's something about the way it's typeset and stuff like that, that there's a whole art and a, and a craft to that. And so I'm a belie- big believer in that. Um, but a lot of presses are, of course. I think that my books, in a general sense, are very will take seriously the idea of of healing and relation relationality and what we can do to heal our culture. So that's the general form of feminism that I ascribe to. Um it is relational. Uh-huh. And believe that we're all interconnected and we have to be and that there's and that there's tremendous amount of dissociation mm-hmm. that is at the root of a lot of the pain in our problems. So maybe that's different too. I mean 
I do feel like there's still a lot of stories that aren't told. Will you also publish works of fiction? Yeah, I just acquired a novel by Karen Haviland called Please Read This Leaflet Carefully. And it's really interesting. It's the She's a Norwegian writer, but she writes in English. And the first chapter is a young mother living in New York City, working at Scandinavia House. And she has a she has a two-year-old child. And she also has endometriosis. So she has this chronic pain, pain. chronic illness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't look sick. Mm-hmm. And so she's sort of irritating to the people around uh, her. But she's mm-hmm. in tremendous pain. Mm-hmm. And she has a sort of an ex-husband. And she's trying to deal with custody. So that's the first chapter. And then it, it scales backwards. It tells goes backwards through time. So the next chapter... She's, you know, five years younger, the next chapter, and it ends with her as a little child in Norway. Um, a, a, she was a competitive figure skater. And you you get this sense, you're left with this sense of all the hope mm-hmm. that she had because she starts having symptoms mm-hmm. of her endometriosis quite young. and But you, this this child doesn't know or this teenager doesn't know what's where in, she, what's yeah, in store, so but her, you know yeah. as the reader. Yes, and yes. So it's a very poignant, interesting, but also it's this beautiful literary evocation of somebody with endometriosis, which is, again, incredibly common. And people don't want to hear about it because it's upsetting to hear about female pain, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. chronic pain. And female problems. Yeah, exactly. Chronic Lyme disease. I know a lot of women. And I remember when I first was, you know, kind of doing lots of history, reading lots of histories of the second wave, I met a lot of second wave women. And I was surprised by how many had chronic fatigue syndrome and things like that. And fibromyalgia, like really painful and energy depleting syndromes yes. that were not taken seriously by doctors that were rendering them not productive in terms of, you know, these were brilliant women, brilliant mm-hmm. thinkers and activists. And so I think that there's this correlation that I want to find a way to to frame for mm-hmm. readers of these these powerful women who get relegated to the sidelines because people don't want to deal. Yeah. That, with yeah. Them. Well, that's again, it's patronizing. Right. And you'll publish a book by a man. Oh, yeah. The Brontes Purnell book is by a man. Um, it's called The Nightlife of Jacuzzi Gasket. He's a brilliant. I published him at Feminist Press. He was a Whiting Fellow this year, which is an enormous literary. You get a $50,000 cash prize, this big literary achievement. And he's very special. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody I've I've acquired so far, I honestly think they're geniuses. Like they're people that I really That you've acquired with. or they've come to you. Well, the first four books were all people I knew before, so I had I had worked with them in some capacity, not necessarily at Feminist Press before. So is it just you? It's me. I have a publicist named Kate Heacock, who's amazing, who I've worked with before. Mm-hmm. I have an art director who is truly amazing. Um, I'm beginning the process of having to staff up more. I have a copy editor. So I have I have a staff, like a skeleton crew. They can't work for me full time because I don't have the capital yet. You know, the, the books are just launching right now. Uh-huh. And then as things ramp up, I have to have more people working for me. I have, she's sort of in between intern and an editorial assistant. She's paid, but she's also a young person in college. So I have a staff. But, you know, over the years, all the things I've ever worked on, I've never had a shortage of really brilliant young people that wanted to work for me, being paid less than they're worth, but, mm-hmm. you know, kind of mm-hmm. more than an internship. Well, it's also, it's a, it's a mission, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, for people who are involved with you. Yeah. You know, this is just not phoning the stuff in. Yeah. And they get a lot of responsibility because I am, I'm not asking them to get me coffee or, you know, like do kind of BS research yeah, I'm right. on the internet. They're really doing what I do. Uh-huh. And so they get a lot of experience. Did you ha- do you have financial backers? Was that tough to do I, I without mean, getting super personal? Well, I'll just be personal because why not be transparent? I withdrew from my 401k. So it's Jennifer money. Yeah, it's Jennifer money. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. And there's a certain there's certainly a limit to what's in my 401k. Like I, I've pretty much took out what I should. I mean, what I can. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean, and now we have to be serious about this. You have a hell of a track record. This is not just some whimsy, you know, BS. You you know what you're doing. You just didn't a rugby team, right? And say, oh, I think I'll try that. Although right. there is a little bit of that in your background. I too. feel pretty confident because I've never lost money on anything I did on my own. Mm-hmm. I've always ended up making money on it. Um, not a ton, but mm-hmm. you know, I've made back what I put in, and then and then some. It's it's enabled me to make a living. So if I made a documentary, you know, you lose money as you're making it, but then I would sell it afterwards to women make movies, and then they would sell it to all the libraries, and I would end up making mm-hmm. then residuals for the for 15 years. And so these things that I've created in the past, I have been able to build a living out of them. And I think that because I don't, the reason I didn't want backers. Um, is I don't want to be beholden to that. I didn't want to mm-hmm. owe anyone money. I didn't want to feel like I I lost money for mm-hmm. anyone. But you're also, I'm assuming, juggling other balls in the air, or are you just really just focused on daughter? I mean, because you can't seem not to do other things. I'm doing the women's review of books, which which happened. It came it came into my it fell into my lap in such a serendipitous way that I again couldn't say no to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, I've always been really drawn to second wave sort of institutions. <laughs> Don't apologize. Yeah, I mean it's just one of those things where I'm just I'm really I grew up on them. They're mm-hmm. important to me, and I I really relish the opportunity to sort of lift them up to like, like they never really need exactly modernizing. They're always really strong, but help them get to their rightful readers or whatever. And so. The Women's Re- Review of Books is the longest-running print review of, 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 you know, women's writing. Uh-huh. And maybe the only, you know, I don't know. And it's it still has thousands of subscribers and mainly institutional subscribers, but individual su- subscribers too. And I just thought, well, how cool to get to assign these reviews, select these books mm-hmm. that I think are significant, mm-hmm. and have an eye toward the classroom, but also an eye toward like what, what would be important for this readership to be exposed to. And so I've been doing that as well. And that's maybe right now it's 50% of my time, but I'm going to have to make it a little bit less than that. Uh But I have an editorial assistant for that, um, that the the publishing house that owns Women's Review of Books pays for. And she's just amazing. And it's going to be great. But there's like no neurosis in you, is there? I mean, if, if your stomach is in knots, for example, or that you're nervous about something, you hide it really well, don't you? Well, I think you have to be a little nervous or you don't do a good job. Well, yes, but, but yeah, I, I I don't think it. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm not from super the anxious. line of I'm not worthy. You know, that, yeah. Oh, I don't know that. And nobody talked you out of it. No, right. I mean that, that. There's again, the track record speaks for itself, and you had a lot of encouragement. But it really starts within you, and that's the stuff that that to me is so important. So many of us, ah, oh, I don't know that I could do this, or yeah. or this validation that we need from other people. Boy, if you could free yourself of that, it would be one of the most liberating things in the world. Now I'm being very personal about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, know? absolutely. I think we all really drag a lot of that around Those, with us. That rocks, that bag yeah, of rocks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very valuable. I'm glad you brought that up. It's so valuable to admit it. So the first book I wrote, I wrote with a friend, and she was brilliant. And we were able to, so Amy Richards, and we were able to support each other when we felt nervous and not worthy. So mm-hmm. if she was having a moment where she was like, uh, I could be like, are you kidding? I learn so much from you every day and vice versa. And when we went out and we had to support the book and we had to defend what we were saying, we had each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think during my maybe most vulnerable part, I I really solved that by doing it with someone else. And then when there were moments where I had to do things on my own, I kind of remembered what it felt like to be that vulnerable and that I got through it. 
and that it's okay and that you learn so much from it. And so I would just sort of remember what the process is, which is it doesn't always feel good. It feels worse not to do it. Right. And when you make a mistake, the only real crime is if you don't take some lessons from it and sort of understand what you could have done better. And, you know, sometimes I'll make a mistake or something will really go awry. And obviously I'm part of it if something went awry. Um, but I'll feel really wronged. You know, there'll be something, you know, that's really awful. And it's, it takes a lot of energy for me not to, you know, stay in that place of just feeling wrong. Yep, 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 yep. But yep. I actually think mm, it's do. Yeah, I think it's very it doesn't serve too many purposes. So I really try to just let it go. And, you know, another thing I'm trying to work on, because I, I think sometimes the, the flip side of that is really needing to resolve and reconcile with, like, so let's say I, you and I had a conflict mm -hmm. and I was really struggling with it still. I also think you don't always need to reconcile with the person. Huh. And that sometimes that drive to do it is its own mania and you're not going to get, you know, like maybe maybe you need to. But and maybe there's you know so many unth unsaid things and they need to be aired, but sometimes they don't. Yeah, that's yeah. I have to incorporate more of that into my life on a, just a very personal level. It's very empowering what you're doing, and it's impactful and it's important, and we need it. We need you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I hope lots of people listening buy daughter books when they start coming out in September. Not for nothing. <laughs> Do they know about you in Iceland? Well, I just met the president and first lady of Iceland at Scandinavia House about a week and a half ago. And because they're so accessible, basically, <laughs> they just right. make them so, so accessible. It's wonderful. But Iceland has such an amazing literary community. I'm really trying to build bridges to that right now in a meaningful way. And I did just make an offer on an Icelandic novel. And I think if that goes through, then the, the bridge oh, will I be Oh, I think built. that's really important. Um, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you again for coming back and sharing what you share with us. The world needs more Jennifer Baumgartners. And really right back at you. Much more continued success, Jennifer. Thank really, you. really. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Buddy, buddy.